Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Xu Yan Yu, and I am a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Today, we present an interview with Amy LeBlanc, led by Ryan Stern. In this interview, Ryan Stern and Amy LeBlanc discuss LeBlanc's chapbook, Undead Juliet at the Museum, poetry collection, I Know Something You Don't Know, and novella, Unlocking. They examine recurring themes such as horror, botany, and ornithology, and explore the importance of community. LeBlanc shares how her poetic practice and prose writing inform one another and her favorite readings to help shift creative modes. Ryan Stern is a PhD student, creative writer, and research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Amy LeBlanc is a PhD student in English and creative writing at the University of Calgary. Amy's debut poetry collection, I Know Something You Don't Know, was published with Gordon Hill Press in 2020 and was longlisted for the 2021 Relit Award and selected as a finalist for the Stephen G. Stephenson Award for Poetry. Her novella, Unlocking, was published by the University of Calgary Press in June 2021 and was a finalist for the Trade Fiction Book of the Year through the Book Publishers Association of Alberta. Amy's next poetry collection, I Used to Live Here, is forthcoming with Gordon Hill Press in spring 2025. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in Room, Arc, Canadian Literature, and the Literary Review of Canada, among others. Amy is the recipient of the 2020 Lieutenant Governor of Alberta Emerging Artist Award and a Canada Graduate Scholarship for her doctoral research into fictional representation of chronic illness and gothic spaces. Amy is also a 2022 Killam Laureate. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Amy LeBlanc. Amy, welcome. Before we get into my first question, how are you? After the whirlwind two years you've had, are you feeling tired? Because just listing all that you've done has exhausted me. (laughs) I'm doing well. It's a combination of being tired, but also very 
excited. I feel like I've accomplished a lot in the last two years. So I'm also reminding myself as often as I can to rest, despite the nagging little voice that just says to keep producing and keep trying to publish more work. But it has been a really exciting couple of years. And I've just had so many great collaborative opportunities in the last few years. Like these works that I've managed to produce haven't been produced alone or in isolation. So doing well. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing well as well. I'm very excited to actually be sitting down talking to you about your work. What I'd like to begin with is a reading of selected poems from your latest chapbook, Undead Juliet at the Museum. How's that sound? That sounds great to me. So I've got three from the new chapbook that I would love to read. The first one is called Fish, and this is a strange little true crime poem that I wrote for Lavinia Fisher, who is frequently reported to be the first female serial killer in the United States. The kicker and the really interesting fact is she may not have existed at all. So I wrote this poem to discuss the complications about memory and about storytelling. Plus, I'm a weird true crime aficionado, so I had a lot of fun with this poem. Lavinia Fisher slept in a potter's field near the jail, where she poured cups of tea over poison sugar cubes, hung her wedding dress over the back of an oak door. She told me to call her Fish. There was no room in the house, but Fish invited me in for tea said the suit on my body looked like I drowned, but she would revive me. Fish breathed in pearls and spat out buttons, draped iridescent oyster broth across her chest, lined gills with baubles. She bathed me in bourbon. It is possible that I assemble her body with wire hangers, wallpaper paste, or pulp, or spiced salmon guts. When Fish looks at me, I forget the missing men six miles out or six feet down where no one will hear a bubble burst. I see a wedding dress hanging and waltzing in a gulp of her breath. The next poem I'll read is called Daedalus. The wooden box you build is not big enough to hold both bodies. A labyrinthine machine, plank after plank after plank of plywood. The cops used to hide in animals the ligneous body of a bull pressed against your wife's waist. What if you'd had daughters? One might have fashioned wings from muslin, the other could have pulled arrows from flesh with her teeth. They would be synchronous. As it is, you nail a box shut, a slapdash coffin where the nails rust and cannot be removed once they are in place. A copse, a corpse, a catastrophe contained within four walls. And then the last poem from the chat book that I'll read is called Spatial Awareness. The kitchen window is on the left with the sink in front. You could draw an outline and chalk on the cushioned tile with arms, pinky toes, appendix, intestines, hemoglobin, ferritin, but it may not help in the end. Turn the room on its side to shift your heart into a new position, one where blood either pools or flows like a river that runs both ways. With the room in view, move the chair a fraction to the right. This will place you closer to the sun, nearer the airport, closer to tenderness. On second thought, draw the body in chalk on the floor, but make it your own. Solid lines for impenetrable membranes, dashes for DNA, stars for cytokines. A space on the left for a heart that pumps blood toward an airplane moving overhead. Thank you, Amy. That was incredible. The new collection is absolutely fantastic. 
And what really struck me about it is there's a current running through all of the pieces that I would almost describe as horror. So in Fish, you have a poem centered on Lavinia Fisher, who you mentioned is considered to be the first female American serial killer, if she exists. You've also got a poem on Yersinia Pestis, also known as the Bubonic Plague, and of course, the titular Undead Juliet at the museum. What brought about this move to the explicitly macabre? Uh, is horror a fair way to characterize this collection of poems? Those are both really excellent questions. And something I'm, I'm excited to talk about, because that has been something that's kind of been at the forefront of my poetry practice for a while now, writing these poems that could be classified as horror, that could be classified as more speculative, but these poems that have these kind of spooky undercurrents where there's something sinister happening beneath the surface. Part of that does come, like I said, being a bit of a true crime nerd. And that I've got a poem in here for Lizzie Borden, who I love dearly. I've got a poem for Anne Boleyn and for Typhoid Mary. Kind of these figures that are almost canonized in the stories that we tell about them. That They're so popular. There's so many different perceptions about who they were. But most of what we have for testimony in that regard is just the writing that's been done about them. A lot of which has not been done in poetry. So I find it really, really fascinating and quite fun for me <laughs> as, as kind of a thought experiment to really kind of take these characters apart, take these themes apart, where I've got these, like I said, these undercurrents of, of horror and of just general spookiness, while still trying to make them beautiful, because there's kind of that balance to be struck where it's not fully grotesque, it's not fully horrifying there's something that lures you in at the same time. So I do think that horror would, would be a pretty fair descriptor for many of the poems in this collection. But the other thing is Zed Press did such a beautiful job producing it that it's this really beautiful chapbook to look at with these great purple flowers on the front. So again, it kind of lures you in and you don't necessarily know what's, what's hiding behind the cover. Yeah, spookiness and beauty, that's an interesting dichotomy. And as you mentioned, it hasn't really been at the forefront but you've had both of those existing in your poetry before. Uh, this cycle isn't as radical a departure as it may seem, but as you said, maybe it's a natural progression from what you've been producing before. You know, I know something you don't know, there are those horror elements present, but not as pronounced, maybe a bit more subdued. So do you see this as something that is different to what you've produced before, or is it just that natural progression? I think it's a little bit of both because I, I think there, there are elements of a natural progression, but I think maybe the difference is that for this chat book, I was a lot more mindful um, about what I was doing and about the thematic links and the kind of overall tone that I was going for, which in some ways is easier to sustain over a smaller work like a chat book than it is a full collection. With the full length, there's individual sections that have different vibes and different feelings to them. Whereas with the chapbook, you make this cohesive cycle almost of poems where the poems individually each tell a story, but across the whole chapbook, they tell a slightly different one. And I think I, I found that process easier to sustain in the chapbook that I did in the collection. So that's why I picture it as a continuation. I think a continuation more than a departure. But I think it's also me discovering my poetic voice and discovering the registers that I want to write in and the kind of stories that I want to tell through poetry in a way that I hadn't quite figured out how to do with the full length. And I'm still figuring it out, 
I think it'll it'll be probably a lifelong process in my in my writing practice. I think I have a better sense of it for the chapbook than I did for the full length collection. Do you think as you move back into longer projects that this is going to be something that will help inform getting those cohesive stories across all the smaller cycles within the book? I think it will. And part of my plan right now is I want to use, of looking ahead, I have not done work for this yet, but looking ahead, I want to use Undead Juliet as kind of a launching pad for a second collection so that I can work on a second full length that has those same kind of tones and that same kind of unity that I personally feel like I didn't have quite as good a grip on in my first collection. So I'm excited. I don't know what that collection is going to look like yet, but I just have a sense of the tone that I want it to have. So I definitely, I, I want to keep working on Undead Juliet, this currently unnamed full length collection number two will hopefully have some of the same kind of elements and hopefully I can just keep getting more comfortable with that voice and just keep working on that register. And that sounds fantastic to me because I want to read more of this and it's great to hear that Undead Juliet is still undead and will continue through future works, <laughs> at least tonally. But I want to shift slightly and start talking about some of the similarities. You mentioned the absolutely beautiful cover of Undead Juliet. You've also had Collective Nouns for Birds and Lady Bird the Lady Bird also had beautiful covers. And that is a similarity I see in all of your work is the recurrent imagery of birds. It's always been wonderful and it will always continue to be wonderful. But these ornithological inclusions, if I can call them that, are also in both I Know Something You Don't Know and Unlocking, although it's not gracing the cover. So I'd love to know more about what draws your attention towards this imagery of birds. I think part of it comes from this fundamental <laughs> deep-seated desire to be a bird watcher, <laughs> to just kind of pack everything else in and just spend my life watching birds. I'm very interested in the kind of symbolic opportunities that birds present us with. I think that as a symbol, birds are just so, so kind of rich with possibility because you have kind of this beauty of flight and this, I don't know, almost like a foil to the human body where the birds can do things that we can't. They can, they can fly, they can migrate in ways that we're unable to. And, and then there's kind of the flip side in that birds factor in quite heavily in so much mythology and in fairy tales that I'm really curious about. Like one of my favorite fairy tales is the juniper tree. And there's just this refrain from the bird that colors everything else. Birds for me, I think, present that opportunity to lean into that beauty at the same time as kind of accessing that darker side. Just they're symbolically, they're so loaded with so much potential and all these different directions you can take them. So you're right, like almost all of my work has birds in some way, whether they're metaphors or literal birds, they're all over the place. And I think maybe it's a symbol that I'm still trying to figure out how to work with and how to use to its full potential. I, I love having birds in my work. Bottom line, I'm just so curious about how we can use those to their full potential. Yeah, that's fantastic. I really like the fact that you've called yourself almost a closeted bird walker with that deep-seated desire just to watch birds. So I'm just kind of curious, have you found yourself bird watching during the pandemic? And has it changed your relationship to what you were seeing in your own yard? And has it influenced how you use this imagery? 
You know what? It definitely has. Cause what I, what I found, like, I'm sure what, what everyone has kind of found of being home so much is that you get really keenly aware of the spaces that you occupy. For me anyway, I pay a lot more attention to the little things. Like if I'm sitting at my kitchen table getting work done, I notice that there's like a cluster of nut hatches in the tree and I just kind of watch them do their work. There's also some ducks in my neighborhood that come by every summer. So I check in on them a couple times a week, see how they're doing. I've definitely just been paying more attention to them. What I always find really fascinating too, and this is kind of the caveat to the beauty of the birds is I also have a lot of dead birds in my work. A lot of birds that fly into windows, like Undead Juliet opens with a bird poem. And I wrote that one. It was just before COVID started, but there was this dead crow that was on my street and I would walk by it every day on my way to the university. And I just saw it for about four weeks straight in varying states of decay. And then one day it just wasn't there. And there was this one little foot just by itself. Like something like that is just so fascinating. And it's those moments where I think we all have these as writers. We are like, what a weird experience. I'm going to write about this. So that became a strange poem about a dead crow. And I think I've had a lot more of those moments during COVID too, because you just watch these birds that just, they're out there. They're not really susceptible to COVID. Like their lives haven't changed that much. And for so many people, birds symbolize that freedom to just get up and go. And there's something particularly attractive about that during COVID times when we're all kind of stuck in our houses and you just watch these birds and you get a little bit jealous, honestly. But since we can't do that, you get to just kind of enjoy it by proxy. Well, I'd like to refocus the conversation toward unlocking, if you don't. In your novella, birds are typically carrion or birds of prey. So notably, crows, magpies, and vultures. So you've described birds as having this potential uh, for freedom and beauty. And I was wondering why in unlocking, are they more of a token of overcoming or something is ominous? You're, you're totally right about unlocking and the ways that birds are kind of operating in this story and that there really aren't many beautiful birds in unlocking. There's, like you said, vultures, there's like carrion birds, there's deformed Thanksgiving turkeys, like there's really no beautiful <laughs> soaring birds in the sky. And part of that is just to kind of have that ominous undertone and that what I really wanted to do with unlocking was just create a short, concise novella that had layers of all different kinds. And using the birds in that way gave me another layer that I could use to just say, okay, here's what's happening on the surface. Here's the symbolism. Here's the way that the same situation might be playing out with birds instead of people. And I don't know, sometimes I just write, <laughs> write particular scenes that I know I will enjoy writing. So like I listened to a podcast about the great Kentucky meat shower about four years ago. And ever since then have just wanted to work that into a strange dinner conversation. And then this book gave me the opportunity to work in these really weird bird anecdotes as like an opportunity for characterization. Cause who talks about the great Kentucky meat shower at dinner, except for me. So that just gives me a fun opportunity to play with my characters, to kind of place them against these different stories. And a lot of those stories do happen to do with birds. I want to return to your backyard for a second, because the backyard exploration doesn't stop with birds. There's also a lot of interesting plant imagery. You use plants in myriad interesting ways, notably the plants in Euphemia's home, which, while beautiful, portend a certain doom in their careless handling. 
This seems to tie back very nicely to Euphemia's prologue in which secrets are compared to plans. I'd like to know generally how you see plants as images being deployed in the novella, and also do you see secrets as potentially hazardous, especially considering the liberating effect for your protagonist, Lou? Absolutely. I think in another life, I was probably supposed to be a botanist. That's always been my theory. And I'm really, really fascinated by the botanical Gothic. Just the ways that different plants, like birds, can just be used in a text for symbolism. I have a lot of weird knowledge about poisonous plants. Again, podcasts and books, just strange reading interests. So this was another opportunity where I got to have a lot of fun with Euphemia as a character of just this woman who harbors and nourishes all of these poisonous plants. And the plants, especially in the prologue, they are kind of operating as this metaphor for secrecy in that you do have this plant and if you nurture it in a certain way, it will grow. The same way that if you nurture a secret in a certain way, it'll grow. And at a certain point, both plants and secrets could get completely out of control <laughs> if you're not taking the proper care of them. And I think, again, it was just, it was an opportunity for me to play with some of that weird poisonous plant trivia that I find so fascinating and then pair that with a character where those plants can tell us something about her specifically and I wanted to have as much as keys were a thread throughout the whole novel I wanted plants to be that secondary thread and that even in the beginning drafting stages I knew that it would open with plants and it would end with plants that was that bookend that I wanted to have. And it opens with these kind of unruly poisonous plants and it ends with this little potted lavender plant that's quite, quite tame, but still beautiful. So kind of using plants to show that character progression. But in the beginning, definitely digging into that weird botanical gothic vines all over the place, poisonous foxglove kind of vibe. Because I find that really fascinating. And I think once Euphemia kind of came together as a character, it just fits so perfectly with her that she was going to be like the neighborhood poisonous plant lady, <laughs> which I think I might also be when I'm 80. <laughs> but it just, it works so well for her as a character to have that kind of quirk of, of her poisonous plants. Yeah, Euphemia is absolutely fabulous. So at the end then, the lavender plant that you mentioned that's on the fireplace mantle, is that simply representative of Lou and Euphemia's secret relationship or their secret history? And why isn't that one poisonous? That's an interesting question because I did think about making it a poisonous plant, but what I wanted to represent at the end there was this fundamental shift and that I wanted the continuity of it still being a plant to say like not everything has changed, but just a slightly different plant, a slightly tamer plant, one that's just kind of common and comfortable. Um, having that one on the mantelpiece, and I, I don't want to totally spoil the ending, but it does have a secret inside of it still and that it's not poisonous, but there is something deeper than just that lavender plant that's on the mantle. So in a way, it does represent that relationship for Lou and Euphemia. But there's also that extra kind of layer of just something a little bit deeper that if you just dig like an inch into the soil, you find something else. And I absolutely was not going to spoil that, but I just want, I was curious about how you're using that image at the end. I found it really fascinating that it was very different from a lot of the other plants and you explained it wonderfully. I want to talk about Lou for a second. So Lou mentions that she was once an aspiring poet, but the town already has its author in the mystery novelist, Bart Hastings, whose home Lou breaks into. So not to try and read it autobiographically, 
But in writing Unlocking, did you see yourself as a poet breaking into a novelist's home? In a lot of ways, I did. I think that's a perfect way to explain it. Like for me, I do love poetry and fiction. I love working on them equally. They just are completely different kinds of creative access for me. And when I was working on this and redrafting it, at that point, I felt a lot more comfortable working on poetry. And a lot of the time I had to remind myself that I was working on fiction. I didn't, I couldn't make it too poetic. I had to kind of keep it within that fictional structure if it was going to be marketed as a novella. So there definitely were points where that particular line kind of sums up the feeling of, of trying to break into something that felt completely different for me. And that felt a little bit more risky in a lot of ways. And part of that, what I've always kind of joked about is I felt a lot more nervous about this book coming out than I did about the poetry collection. And part of that is that more people read fiction. Not that many people read poetry. They just don't. Even if they say they do, most of them don't. But knowing that this needed to have that narrative continuity and needed to have some kind of linear progression, even if it's not a linear book and just the logic and the flow, everything had to line up perfectly. And it's a short book, but that just, it felt difficult to sustain it. And it took a lot of mental and creative energy to make sure that those pieces were all lining up and that a character was different at the end than they were at the beginning, but not so different that it wasn't believable. Whereas a lot of the time it feels easier to kind of not that writing poetry is easy, but you have this smaller piece and you might just have to sustain the tone and the voice and the kind of rules of the piece for a smaller amount of space. This just felt, I think maybe I'm, I'm revealing here that I'm very afraid of long form fiction. It makes me very nervous. And that might be the poet in me that just wants things that are small and concise and really tight. So I tried to keep that in the novella, but I think that is the poet in me that just felt a little bit like I was breaking into a space that wasn't quite as safe or quite as comfortable as poetry has always been for me. So that's, that's quite astute that you point out that line because I never thought about that <laughs> as what I was doing, but there's probably little bits of autobiography in there that I am not aware of. <laughs> well, I'm happy I could show you something new about your work. And you mentioned concision. Your prose style is brilliantly concise. And you mentioned in an interview for Read Alberta that you love the process of writing a novel because there's no room for fluff or filler which might run contrary to what some people believe about long-form prose. So you've kind of mentioned it. I'd like you to put a finer point on it. Is this the poetic impulse for precision being applied to prose? I think in some ways it is. I mean, the, the book is only, it's 110 pages. And even at that, I, I find when I get over 80 pages per project, I start to get a little bit nervous and I start to get a little bit, a little bit antsy as I'm working on it. And that might be just... That my, my poetry training instills that kind of economy of words and that economy of diction that just says like, pack this down, make it punchy with the smallest amount of words possible. And then what's tough is that, and like when I was trying to get the book published, I kept getting good feedback from publishers who were saying like, can you make it 60,000 words? And then we might be interested. And it sits at, I want to say 34 or 37,000. And I'd kind of look at it and I think, I don't know. I don't, first off, I don't know if I can do that. Like, I don't know if I'm capable of that. And then I also wasn't sure if the story was capable of that either. I felt like if I made it that much longer, I would just be dragging out these plot lines and dragging out these characters that would start to feel kind of tired by the end. Like, I don't know. And maybe that's just my love of the novella 
in general, because I love reading them because they're so tight because they have to be. There's really, like I said in the interview, there's no room for fluff. There's no room for anything that doesn't build the story forward with every single scene. And I think that is partly the poet in me that really does just love things in tiny, tiny packages. And you pick up a poetry collection and you read one small poem. And sometimes that little poem just kind of rips your heart out of your chest because there's so much in it in such a small space. And I wanted to do something similar with the novella because I think there is just that poetic impulse to just make things smaller, which I know is not the angle that every fiction writer takes, but I think it might be why I'm so scared of long form fiction is that I worry that if I make it longer and if I have those pieces that aren't automatically building the story forward, that people are just going to get tired of it and just put it down. Um, But if I can just keep the story moving every second and never give them a break, then maybe they'll keep reading and they'll get to the end. You very easily make it to the end of your novella. It's concise, but it somehow also provides room to breathe and live with these characters. So I think you've been really successful. I want to go back to something that you had mentioned just a few minutes ago. So you mentioned how you manage two creative practices simultaneously and that you need to shift over to a fiction mode from a poetry mode. So I'd like to know, how do you make that shift? Is it a conscious effort? It's it's a very conscious effort in that I often struggle to work on both a poetry project and a fiction project at the same time. I usually try and block them out so that I have a certain amount of time, however many months, need to be dedicated to this fiction project, and then I can switch gears and dedicate time to this poetry project. Usually the way that I switch gears is by reading a lot of whatever genre I need to be working in. So if I need to get my poetry brain back together, because I feel like I've lost it since I last worked on poetry, I often just pull out some of my favorite poetry collections and just go back to poets that always make me excited to write poetry. And then the same for fiction. I just kind of go back to my, some of my go-to authors that just make me really want to pick up whatever this project is and just dig right into it. And what I do find for my practice is that I think as both a fiction writer and a poet, I think there's a lot of crossover in how I work with both. And that I think they inform each other. Like, I think my fiction writing helps me get into a narrative mindset with poetry of like, what underlying story is this poem telling or the section of a collection? And then, like I said before, I think being a poet helps me with the fiction writing of just focusing in on the level of the word and then the level of the sentence and just making those as tight as possible as though they were poetry. Even though it's fiction, you have all of that space that you don't in poetry. I think they they feed off of each other. And I've heard other poets and fiction writers talk about this, that both of their practices, they're not separate. There's, there's crossover and there's so much in between space where you're not 100% sure what genre you're even working in. Maybe sometimes it's a hybrid genre, but they definitely inform each other, I think in probably ways that I'm not even completely aware of. That's really fascinating that you mentioned hybridity because there are moments within Unlocking that remind me quite a bit of your poetry. In your poetry, you have a tendency in certain poems to start to list nouns and objects. And as well, Lou also has that impulse. Uh, So this is the uh, narrator speaking, uh, but in chapter three, in her hardware store, Lou carried some state-of-the-art tools. 
full-set cordless track saws, titanium hammers, electric screwdrivers, and lithium jigsaws. So you tend to implement some of the same techniques in both your prose and your poetry. So would you consider elements of this to be hybrid or is this purely prose in your mind? It's interesting because in my mind, before you said that, it was purely prose, but now that you mention it, that is kind of a technique that I do rely on sometimes probably too much. Part of it, I think, is I, I love I love list poems in particular. I find them really fascinating to read. Sometimes I find them really interesting to write. And I actually have not noticed that that worked its way into here. But it's, I don't know, I guess with the list poem it, and the list in general is it's kind of the equivalent of what I was talking about before about that economy of words and that you don't even have these connector pieces that are tying this together. You just have commas or, or spaces. And then with the list poem, it's kind of, you're trying to convey something more than just the objects that you're listing yourself. You're just trying to unpack a character in this case, just based on the objects that she herself chooses to list. So I think there definitely is a poetry connection there. That is just not one that I had noticed. It's really fascinating because especially when the narrator is narrating for Lou, there's almost a ritual to it. The same way when she visits the gravestones of her parents, it's that same ritualistic way of handling things. Is the element of ritual something that you're consciously implementing into your poetry as well? That's an interesting thought because it definitely is. I find the concept of ritual really fascinating. A lot of the time when I'm looking at ritual, I'm looking at it from like, like witchcraft, spell casting, again, spooky occult stuff kind of standpoints, because there's so much history regarding ritual that's really fascinating to unpack. And there's so much richness there to write poetry about. So I definitely feel like there's a lot of ritual at work in I Know Something You Don't Know. And then a little bit of ritual as well in unlocking in that Lou has this habit of counting things. When she's in moments of stress, she stops and she counts like the bricks on the side of a building or something, or she counts her keys. And then that's her own little calming ritual. And she tries these other rituals of like anxiety tips. She read online of like breathing patterns. Like she tries these different rituals to calm herself down and to be grounding in moments of stress. And they don't always work, but there's something to be said for the act of attempting that ritual. So yes, definitely in both not quite as explicitly in unlocking, I think, but my, my fascination with ritual definitely works its way into probably almost everything that I write. And I think I was meaning more so lose personal rituals, like seven seconds in, four seconds out, counting the bricks. So yeah, that's precisely what I was getting at. It's a really fascinating recurrent theme in all of your work. And I really quite enjoyed it. So I would be remiss if talking about unlocking, I did not mention community. The novella takes place in small-town Alberta. As an Albertan writer, you unabashedly write Alberta. Why did you choose to situate your novel here? And for those outside the province, what captivating secrets does this province hide? For full disclosure, I have never lived in a small town. I've lived in Alberta my whole life, but I have never lived in a small town. And that influenced part of the decision to not write this in a town that existed that I had not lived in. I thought that would be a disservice to everyone. But I knew that I needed this to be in a small town. I knew that the story wouldn't hold up and wouldn't be the same if it was set in like Calgary or a different larger city. So the way that I kind of worked around that was just by creating a small town and by taking what I know about 
Alberta culture and all of the various things that happen kind of across the whole province. I fueled that small town with these strange characters that you have in every community. So you've got like people who go for a run every morning in their spandex running group, and you've got strange writers and crafty people and the artisanal people and your town kind of grouches. Like you've got these people that appear in every community just in different forms. And I would be remiss in this novella if I hadn't mentioned the Torrington Gopher Hole Museum, which is one of my all-time favorite Alberta quirky places. That just felt like an important, a strange quirky Alberta element that I just, I needed to have in this book. And it's not a huge mention. It's just kind of an homage to the Gopher Hole Museum, <laughs> where I've not been in a long time because of COVID, but someday I will go again and see the gophers in the wedding dresses. But that for me is one of those kind of strange Alberta secrets and that people that aren't from here hear about the Gopher Museum and just have no idea how to rationalize what is going on in that tiny place. I definitely really did want to dig into community in this book, like you said, because the secrets that are in this book would be meaningless if they weren't occupying a space of community and if they weren't happening in a community. It's people and the people that Lou doesn't want to disappoint and the people that Lou feels beholden to and is being blackmailed by. Like Those are the people that make stories happen. I don't know. I guess I just, I had an interesting time working through everybody in this town. Basically, I did not have space to focus on everybody that I could have, but I also needed to make sure that this felt fully fleshed out and that it felt like a place that people could visualize. And I feel like for me, I, I think my weakest point as a writer is setting. I really, really struggle with setting. So I put a lot of my time and energy in this book into really trying to make this place come alive. And most of the feedback that I've gotten has been that people can kind of picture themselves in Snowton. They can picture what this place might look like, even though it doesn't exist. I would definitely echo that feedback, that it feels very grounded in a real place. And something for an Albertan like I am, I know that town. And you mentioned Torrington as well, which I was so happy made an appearance in this. So I think you've really done a fantastic job of creating space for your characters to actually inhabit. So I want to ask you, is this an unconventional community? Or is this simply just a reflection of the bizarreness of all communities? <laughs> I think it's, it's a little bit of a little bit of both in that every community is unique in its own way. But I think it is honestly a reflection of, of most communities, just however these weird quirks are embodied, they just happen differently in each place. But like I said before, like I find the idea of writing about community quite fascinating and writing about the ways that people intersect and affect each other and let each other down and bring each other up. I find that just to be a really interesting part of the writing process. And is it's definitely something that I want to kind of continue unpacking through whatever comes next for future work for me. It's just looking at like what, what makes a community work? How do the people within it kind of negotiate all of the complications of being in a community with other people where you don't always necessarily like each other and you don't always get along, but you've got this, this common bond of living in the same place. And I think that that can happen in like an apartment building and it can happen in a small town and it happens in like the little microcosms of a big city. I just picked a small town 
to sit in a geographic space and to kind of unpack a little bit of the more isolated connections where you're not living in a city where you can hop on the train and just go out for lunch if you're tired of your neighborhood, living in a small town where it's a little bit more effort to actually leave your immediate space and the people that occupy it. I really feel as though you did an exceptional job bringing not just the space to life, but through those relationships between your characters. They're all fully fleshed and wonderfully eccentric. You're also the managing editor of the Calgary-based magazine Filling Station. You were also omnipresent at readings and literary events in the city and an active member of the University of Calgary's English department. Does this community that you developed and written so beautifully and unlocking, does it reflect your own communities? I think it absolutely does. And what I've always kind of said for myself, just because I love being in the writing community in Calgary so much, and I want to contribute to it and be an active part in it. Um, I've always kind of thought that everything that I do as a writer and every piece of writing that I do is completely influenced by the people that I'm in community with, in that there's people that you write with and people that you share your work with, and you get your input from those people who sometimes are more knowledgeable in a certain area of writing than I am. And there's something like going to readings. I say going to in the old life when we went to <laughs> went to shelf life for a reading. But there's just something really incredible about sitting in a room with people who are also active members of community and who are also invested in this kind of work and just listening to somebody share their work and having that shared experience of listening to that work. And sometimes it's it's brand new work. And sometimes it's an author that you've seen developing over so many years, or sometimes it's somebody that you've mentored or that's mentored you. And there's just something so exciting about that kind of community that for me, it's hard for that to not factor into my work. Like in unlocking, it's explicit in writing about a community. But I think for my poetry too, it's just everything is influenced by the people that are around me and influenced by the people whose work I admire and the people that you get to read with at different readings. They all play a part in whatever strange work it is that I managed to produce. They're all, they're all kind of in there in different ways. So you're right. Like I do, I love being involved in community. It's incredibly important to me to give to this community that I feel like I gained so much from because I don't know that I would produce anything <laughs> if it weren't for friends who are writers and mentors within the community and people that you just get together with and write with sometimes to just say, I haven't written anything in six months. And they say, okay, me neither. And you just get together and put something down on the page. Well, one, I don't believe that you haven't written anything in six months because that's just not supported by this incredible body of work. But also, I, I really liked what you said about entering into discourses with the people in your community and how that supports your writing. Because at the same time, you're simultaneously entering into a discourse with all of these other authors that have previously written in the same genre or the poetry that inspires you. So do you view them as a member of your community as well, in a broader sense? I think so. In a way, I do. Like for Unlocking in particular, when I was working on this, I tried to read really broadly, like works that were in a similar kind of vein to mine. And I tried to read a lot of novellas and kind of study. Like I, I love Bear by Marian Engel such a weird book, but it is one of my favorite books of all time. And I read that and it was kind of like, well, this feels like a masterclass in the novella form. It's not a long book, but it's so intense. It's so packed. And while my book is so different, it does share the same first character name, but I felt like reading that book for me just 
solidified so much of the need for that really careful structure and that really careful pacing to just say, okay, you're going to get to the end of this 110, 120, 130 page book. And it needs to have that tight progression that it just hooks you through the whole way. And Bear does that in very different ways from what my novella does. But that was a book that I returned to a lot. And I read a lot of Alice Munro. I read some of Suzette Mayer's book work. Um, I read a lot of different authors to just get a real sense of what I wanted to do with this book and to get a sense of the people who have done it before me and who I think have done it incredibly well, these incredible pieces of literature and kind of see how I could possibly gear my work like an inch in the same direction as those of just learning from the people who have been doing this for longer than I have and just, I don't know, just kind of absorbing their wisdoms through the work that they have done. Like some of these are people that I'm never going to get to meet. Like I will never meet Alice Monroe as much as I would love to, but I can learn so much from her just by reading her short stories and by reading some of her work that's set in small towns. So that was definitely important in the process of, of working on Unlocking was just really, really relying on people that I think have produced such amazing work. That's absolutely fantastic. Before we finish our talk here, because we are unfortunately running out of time, we're going to finish with another one of your readings, this time from your Stephen G. Stephenson finalist, I Know Something You Don't Know. But before we get to the actual reading, uh, one of the poems you'll be reading is Dear Emily from the section titled Brief Reincarnations. So these reincarnations of women are portrayed with corporeality that extends beyond what they are known for. So their bodies are critically present. At least that's what I found in my reading. So can you explain why you selected the women you did and why this physical description was so important in their portrayals? Absolutely. So these are some, like this section with brief reincarnations, these are some of the poems I had the most fun writing, partly because it speaks back directly to what we were just talking about, being in conversation with writers and with characters and with texts in general, in that I got to zero in on figures that I find really fascinating and kind of mine their work, hopefully in a generative way to kind of mine their work for really interesting elements that I could then kind of translate into poetry. And none of these are meant to be like biographical. None of them are necessarily accurate, partly because some of these people are like fictional characters that don't exist. Like I have a poem in here for a very minor character in Jane Eyre, who most people don't remember is in the book. <laughs> and I've got a poem for Bridget Cleary. And um, this one that I'll read is for Emily Bronte, who I always have this giant literary crush on. She's just so dark and spooky. And this poem is basically a love letter to Emily Bronte. And then I got to dig into the history of who she was and the kind of work that she does. Like Wuthering Heights is just one of my spooky comfort books. And this was just kind of me putting myself in conversation with Emily Bronte, knowing that she would never speak back to me, but kind of initiating that dialogue of writing poetry that kind of opens that conversation of like, what might it be like if I could write a letter to Emily Bronte? What would I want to say? Which is fantastic. But I also want to press you a little bit and understand what the importance of having their actual bodies in it. So even in Dear Emily, you say, we share fingers, your matted hands. There's a lot of embodied presence of these women. And I was wondering what that aspect as well meant for entering into these conversations. The embodied portions of these are really important in some poems more than others. 
I think it's important in each of them, but in some, it's really very like viscerally there, partly because a lot of these women had their bodies mistreated or abused in various ways. Like Bridget Cleary was poisoned and set on fire by her husband because he thought she was a changeling and Paula Jean Weldon disappeared. Her body was never found. Like there's an importance for me in bringing their bodies into these texts and not to say in any way that I can like revitalize them or like resurrect their bodies. But I think for little moments within poetry, I think bringing the body into the work specifically and explicitly does kind of have those, those little moments of just bringing back into consciousness and bringing back that awareness of the importance of that body and the value of that body. That's something that I think poetry can do. So that was part of the decision to bring those bodies into this work. Like another example, I have a poem for Mary Webster, who was hung for being an accused witch. So these bodies were so important in their lives and were frequently part of their deaths. And then in poetry, I can just kind of bring that back to the surface for a reader for maybe half a second, but that counts for something. Absolutely. Yeah. I found while I was reading these that that focus on the body reminded me as a reader that there is a corporeal presence that is often overlooked in looking at the historical accounts of Mary Webster or of Paula Jean Weldon. It's just the absence of the focus on the corporeal in the recounting of who they were as a historical person is completely undermined by your poetry, which I greatly appreciated. Reminding, as you said, of that physical body presence that in oftentimes in these poems was denied or abused in some form. So I, I thought that you did a fantastic job in bringing that to light. And I definitely read that and absolutely loved I Know Something You Don't Know, as well as I well, Thank you. Not that you too much over all of your work, but it's all fantastic and so loaded and dense. And so I think it'd be fantastic now that we've prefaced, dear Emily, if you could please read a selection of poems from I Know Something You Don't Know. Absolutely. Um, so like you said, we prefaced it. So I'll start with Dear Emily, and then I'll read two more poems from the collection. Dear Emily, we share fingers mixed with sourdough from six years blood in our glass house. The apiary is not far off. Your matted hands and knotted fur can take us there, across the winds and through the moors. Emily, you caught a chill when he died. You broke the spell by whittling his coat. He made you a pen from bitters and cloves for drawing tonsils by the picture window. You see sights and smells and smoke and bluebells. Emily, you overheat and so do I, the feverish concubines infecting our nests, a pollen basket between the two of us. We slide our hands over combs and brushes, but you cannot get the scent of chalk to leave you tonight. Dear Emily, your cheeks blossom gray and red in time with the marginal toll of the bell. You lift your rib cage on runny legs, feed the dogs, and close your eyes. The next poem I'll read is called Night Apparition. In a filigree nightgown, she stands at the edge of the water, carrying a blood flower and ladies' lace as moths nip her collar. The horses drink poisoned water with bloating sides and floating specks in their eyes. She slits her lip, shifts her insides until she tastes blood. In her limp grip, the plants in her palms swell with newfangled buds. 
Her rib bones are lined with nectar and fastened with an ivory button. She has already learned that the instrument of poison is a hollow stomach, but milk and cured petals can hasten the spoiling along. The last poem I'll read is called Letter Enclosed. I check ceiling corners for spiders and constellations. I hear my voice ask, are you alone? Is there anyone? But my chest is cresting and I pull the shirt from my stomach. The scent of laundry is strong and the unmentionables bleed fiber into fabric softener. The letter L is written on my hand in case I forget. Unaddressed postcards tumble, creasing their silhouette. Dog-eared pages turn teary as the glue unravels. Against the vibrations, I worry about spilling cups of coffee and move that to the dryer too. The static tears my skin, stagging my spine one stitch at a time. Shrinking, unraveling, the vowels and consonants hang on the line too damp to be read. Thank you, Amy, for that. That was incredibly striking, beautiful, and just a little bit spooky. And I appreciated every second of it. So thank you for speaking with me today, Amy. It's always a pleasure. Again, I'm Ryan Stern. We would like to thank Amy LeBlanc for joining us today to talk with us and you, the listener, for listening. We hope you enjoyed this interview of Amy LeBlanc by Ryan Stern. I'm Xu Yan Yu, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. Tea House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stucco at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Micah Jacobson, Rebecca Galoon, Bakhmud Abne, Ryan Stern, Shu Yan Yu, Mark Lynch, Shazia Hafiz Ramji, Benjamin Gan, and Amy LeBlanc. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.teahouse.ca. That is T-I-A house.ca. If you would like to be in touch, send us an email at teahouseyyc at gmail.com. That's T-I-A-H-O-U-S-E-Y-Y-C at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.